again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Lord Teaches Two podcast, a place where we take a look at Christianity and try to make it make sense in a practical way. If this is your first time listening, I want to welcome you and thank you for taking the time to listen. And for those who returned after listening to episode one, welcome back. My name is Stuart, and if you'd like to know more about me and my background, make sure you check out episode one where I share briefly about who I am. Finally, if you'd like to reach me, you can do so on Twitter at pstumac, or jump in and catch me streaming on Twitch at stumac underscore streams, or jump into the Discord server, which you can find linked in the description of this podcast. Now that all that's out of the way, let's jump into this week's topic, which is one heck of a subject. Last week, we started it off by looking at the need to go deeper in the spiritual walk, and today we continue that journey by looking at the reason for the need of Christ to begin with. Today we're going to tackle tackle the topic of sin, and had I known how deep this rabbit hole went when I started preparing for it, I may have saved it for another time, as what I anticipate is that it's going to take a couple of episodes in order to really address this in the way that it needs to be dealt with. Uh, The subject is more complex than I originally anticipated, so that's what we're going to end up doing. For this week's podcast, we're going to try and present a practical view of sin as we should understand it in our own lives, and hopefully provide a realistic understanding of what it is. The second part will focus on what we should do about it, focusing on grasping the truth of the part we play in sin, repenting, and finally moving forward. All really important things, but for today, I really just want to focus on what is sin. What is it about the subject that people are so against talking about and addressing? Because... It is an uncomfortable subject. It's one we don't like bringing up, but reality is what it is, and we need to we need to talk about it. We need to question it. We need to be willing to say, okay, what is at the core of what we believe? While this subject is widely agreed upon by Christians, I also think it's a subject which, at its worst, is misunderstood, or at its best, is understood only uh, is understood but only on a superficial level. It's my hope that after this discussion, we can at least bring some kind of clarity and specificity to the issue of original sin and what it means for humanity. So, let's start with clearing up some things about sin. Once again, uh, some of this stuff that I'm going to be pulling from, a little bit from Richard Foster in his book Celebration of Discipline, which we mentioned in last episode. Um, And I will try to reference uh, the books that I'm pulling from, where the ideas are built around, so that if you care to check them out, you can. Uh, So, in Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster suggests that we're accustomed to thinking of sin as individual acts of disobedience. And this, I believe, is the understanding that many people have of sin. And while it's not wrong, I, much like Foster, don't think it goes deep enough. Sin goes much deeper and is part of who we are as people, whether we like it or not. Uh, It's part of our foundation. It's part of who we became after all was created and everything was put into place. Foster puts it this way when he explains that sin is part of the internal structure of our lives. This should push us to reflect more deeply on the role that sin plays in our lives as believers in Christ, and it forms the inspiration for this discussion moving forward. My hope is that we'll walk away with a better understanding of sin, which will lead to a deeper interaction with God. And that's really the goal of any of these podcasts, is just to encourage discussion. Come up with your own questions and ask them. So, if the idea of sin being acts of disobedience against God doesn't go far enough, it leaves us with one big question. What is sin? In order to begin this subject, 
we have to separate two ideas about sins so that we can differentiate between them. We'll begin with the one that most people are familiar with, which is acts of disobedience. As a youth and children's pastor, I know that we cover the subject of sin on a pretty regular basis, since our main focus is to teach kids about Jesus, get them familiar with him, get them familiar with the stories that we all loved and grew up with in Sunday school or church, so that they have some kind of foundation or basis of their belief. When going through these teachings, most kids are going to be able to identify sin as any action which displeases God and violates his law. They may not use those words exactly, but they come to understand that God says don't do this, and I do it, so therefore that's sin. And once again, the idea is not wrong, and it is a proper place to start when teaching someone who is new to the faith about sin, because it's easy to identify and label as wrong in God's eyes, because there's an outward action that is easy to identify. It's tangible. God says don't steal. Stealing is a sin. You see someone steal, they're breaking God's law. That's a tangible thing. When we get into some of the more messy subjects about people's feelings and desires in life, well, now we enter into a whole new realm. But we have to separate this reality from that one. Early lessons on the subject center around the Ten Commandments, which include don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, and the list goes on. All of these are actions that are displeasing to God and are sins in their own right. And if this is the path that people have taken to explain sin to their congregation, it's not out of line but it fails to address more complicated messages of sin that are addressed throughout Scripture. Messages that make sin much more sinister than just doing the wrong thing on occasion. So what do I mean by this? Let me try to explain. The issue of actions which displease God, while important, do not address the source of the behaviors in the first place. And I would argue that these actions are not why Jesus came and died on the cross. When Jesus came for this all-important purpose, he came to sacrifice his life for the sin, which we're going to identify with a capital S, of mankind, and not their specific sins, which will be a lowercase s. And now I understand that this may seem a little bit like double talk, but hopefully it's going to make sense when we're done. What Jesus came for was to deal with the nature of sin acquired within humanity, and not necessarily the actions we commit. And... I understand that sounds confusing um, because sin we recognize through actions because that's just what we've come to know and understand and be taught. Uh, the idea is challenging to fully explain, but I'm going to do my best to present my point by relying on the imagery of virus since that's pretty timely uh, for where we are, especially the last year or so that we've been living in, unless you've just been kind of tucked away and haven't been paying attention. In the lives of humanity, the actions we take are symptoms of something greater going on within us, whether good or bad. Much like sneezing, coughing, congestion, headaches, upset stomachs, and whatever else may go along with a virus or a sickness, they're symptoms of the sickness that a person may have. These symptoms are not the sickness itself, but they exist as signs that the true culprit, the virus, is present within. If we simply address the symptoms without going deeper to the root, to the virus, then we'll never truly treat what is actually wrong. This would be like stocking up on throat lozenges and tissues, but not going to see a doctor for antibiotics or whatever may treat or attack or get rid of the virus itself. We're only managing the symptoms while we ignore the virus itself. It's also important to note that while many people may contract the same virus, their symptoms may be very different. Two people suffering from the same strain of a virus may display very different symptoms. 
One may be congested while another runs a fever, or one may have a runny nose while the other is subject to fits of coughing. Same sickness, different symptoms. The same is true of sin. Individual acts of disobedience are symptoms of a great sickness that is happening within all people. Lies, deceit, hatred, violence, theft, slander, and the list can go on are sins with a little s that are symptomatic of the one sin with a big S or a capital S that all people are cursed with. Just like with the virus listed above, the disease is the same, but the symptoms may be different. One person acts through theft while another lies. One person resorts to physical violence while another resorts to verbal abuse. Even in terms of family situations as you're growing up, if there's an absent father or if there's a, an abusive father or mother or whatever it might be, you may see that one brother turns to a homosexual lifestyle as a result of that abuse or neglect, while the other will turn to food or other kinds of addictions. They're all symptoms of the same sickness, which manifests differently depending on the individual and by only treating the symptoms. It never really deals with the sickness itself. And I know some of that stuff is touchy. Um, and there's so much more that goes into family of origin and stuff like that for actions that people take or lifestyles that they embark on. But to try to simplify it a little bit, that's what we've presented. This is why people are unable to fix the big S sin. We can set limitations on our lives to stop the symptoms, but only something more powerful than us can remove the virus. Alan Jacobs, in his book, Original Sin, A Cultural History, Acknowledges that disease or sickness may be the best course to describe the inherent nature, but because sin is a thing that's passed down in humanity through every generation, there is no perfect symptom in that or analogy or metaphor or anything like that. But he does say that it's fair to say that most of us feel that sin affects like disease and that like disease, it's easy to acquire and hard to get rid of. So in regards to treating sin, many take the approach to believe that we can stop doing one thing, but if we're unwilling to submit to the expert in this matter, God, then we're going to find ourselves jumping from one symptom to the next. Now, I used to counsel at a faith-based uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation center, and I would joke with the guys, but it was actually pretty serious in it too, when they met with me the first time. Uh, and we discussed the reality that when it comes to sin, uh, to uh, dealing with their addiction, the best offer or advice I could offer them is stop. Don't do it anymore. You know, that thing that you're doing that's hurting you and your family and all that stuff, just stop it. But if it was that easy, then they would have done that. The reality is you have to get to the root of the issue. And so you have to talk about it. You have to question things. You have to process pain. And that's all part of this dealing with the virus that a lot of people don't want to do or may not know how to do. Paul even addresses this when he speaks of what Richard Foster terms as will worship in the letter to the Church of Colossae. He writes in the second chapter in verses 20 to 23 that since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. We'll dive more deeply into this issue in the second part of our focus on sin, but a few words on this reality. 
Paul is basically telling them, you know, when you focus so much on just the boundaries that you're setting, well, if I don't want to keep giving in to my drug addiction or my food addiction, then I need to stay away from these places or these restaurants or these people. So I can't do that. I can't do this. I got to stay away from that. I got to get away from these things. That relies heavily on you to put something into place. And I'm not saying don't do those things, but if that's all you're relying on, you're not dealing with the issue itself. And we used to use the terminology of what they would call a dry drunk when it came to rehabilitation. Because unless people are doing the work to address those root issues, then they're simply staying in a program long enough to not use. But if they're not dealing with the issues, they will go back to it if it's still there. So we will dive deeper into how to handle sin and how to approach it in the second part of this two-part podcast. But for now, we want to move on to discuss sin. So if our actions are symptoms of greater sickness, what exactly is the original sickness that we're dealing with? This was the main question which drove my research as I was preparing for this podcast because it was always a question that bothered me growing up because I was an odd child and thought about odd things. What was the original sin that humanity took on which put us at odds with God? What is that nature which separates us from the eternal one at the source of all creation? For many of you that may be listening or, you know, and even just across the board, I feel like this may be an easy question to answer. And for some of you, you've maybe never even thought about it. You just said, oh, okay, yeah, sin, that's what it is. Uh, it's bad. We shouldn't have it. And God has to fix it. That... We just need to go deeper than that. They recognized that it was a fundamental Christian doctrine, and they accepted it at face value. The pastor told me this was wrong. The Bible tells me this is wrong. That's good enough for me. Unfortunately, my mind doesn't let me do that, so I decided I needed to dig deeper because I just can't leave well enough alone, so I'm going to drag you through this mire with me. Here we go. For many years, I was under the impression, impression that the one big S sin was rebellion. Based on the Genesis account, God said, don't do something. Adam and Eve did it. That's it. Case closed. Rebellion was the original sin. Obviously, if that answer was good enough, I wouldn't be unsettled by it. And this would be a very short podcast. But I don't think that answer is as clear cut or gets to the root of what original sin is because rebellion itself is an action. Is it sinful? Yes. Is it the original sin? I don't think so. I think it goes even further back than the act of rebellion because we have to go back and understand more of people. Now, I want to offer a short disclaimer here. Um, I know this may be disputed by some, but I don't subscribe to a literal narrative reading of Genesis 1 through 3. I believe there may be some historical components to it, but I think for the most part it should be read closer to poetry than historical narrative, and it needs to be understood as such. The creation account in those chapters holds the purpose of putting right a destructive creation narrative that was circulating during Moses' time, and to correct how the people of Israel at the time understood how God valued people. If you're interested, pick up a copy of the Enuma Elish and give it a read. Give it a read. It's riveting. Uh, it presents the image of humanity being created from the blood of Marduk, a demon king, versus the Christian story, which places us as created in the image of God from the creation of God. With that understanding, we can move forward to the discussion of sin, but we have to be realistic in terms of how we handle scripture, especially with the creation account. 
Um, and we can disagree on that. I'm fine with it. Uh, but for me, I do not subscribe to a literal reading of Genesis 1 through 3. I also don't believe that we can do justice to this subject without looking a bit at the roots of what drove this conversation. For this, I'm going to highly recommend In Adam's Fall, A Meditation on the Christian Doctrine of Original Sin by Ian A. McFarland, and Original Sin, A Cultural History by Alan Jacobs. One cannot accurately teach on the importance of Jesus without addressing the subject, after all. And these are a couple texts that help form the discussion over the past, jeez, centuries. Um, and it's also important to realize that every time, every book I picked up started in the same place. And in anything that I've read on the subject, you can't engage in the discussion of sin without tackling Augustine's ideas. Um, he was basically the, one of the original behemoths of Christian thought after the disciples and after Jesus himself. Um, and his ideas really formed the basis for this discussion over many centuries. For Augustine, the issue of sin dealt with the reality of the carnal flesh. This, for him, is the corrupted carnal flesh which wills against God. Uh, it's going to play a role in the conclusion that's reached later about how I've come to best understand the issue of original sin as we start looking at human will and the part that that plays. When it came to freedom from sin, Augustine believed that we achieve true freedom not by doing what we want, but by conforming our wills perfectly to the will of God so that nothing in us rebels against him. One subject that I do plan on addressing in the future is going to be the power of God and the reality that power is not displayed in what you're capable of, but what you restrict yourself from. So that'll be another subject for another time. Sin then was something that was best dealt with uh, through restraint and not freedom of doing whatever we want. So in order for us to begin addressing the issue of sin, I believe it's best for us to start by revisiting what exactly happened at the fall in Genesis 3. So we're going to take some time to look at that before we move on. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. You, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will, to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. All right, now what I'm going to propose may get a bit jumbled, but I'm going to try to make it as clear as I possibly can. Because some of this stuff is fairly new in terms of my own ideas. Um, and it was triggered by the reading, so we'll do what we can. As I mentioned before, reading the passage in Genesis, I'm going to propose that original sin was not rebellion, but I'm going to propose that it's unbelief. It's my conclusion that based on unbelief, rebellion was the act which was carried out after mankind had settled on the idea that God could not be trusted or believed in. In order to arrive there, in order to arrive there though, I need to address the very fabric of human creation. Human beings were created with three key components, and you can argue that there's so many, so much more, and humanity is pretty complicated because it is. But three key components that are relevant to this discussion and often conflict with one another. Those three things are needs, desire. And will. At their foundational level, none of those are sinful. We were created with every one of them, and therefore, being created with them, in and of themselves, they are not sinful and they are not wrong. God, being incapable of sin, created humanity with them with the intention that they would all be used for his glory, and accepting the risk of allowing humanity the freedom to act on them in connection with him. At least that's what I who knows little of God's true intentions on things, perceive his intentions for these things to be. I'm not here to pretend that I know the full intentions of God because God does not think the way that we do. But in my reading and study, it almost seems that this is the direction he was going. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that statement, but we're going to stick solely to that which applies to our discussion on sin. At our most foundational level, human beings have needs in life. And physical, psychological, emotional... All these needs tie into the reality of human existence. Different actions or provisions help to fulfill these needs in life, and when one is lacking, desire comes into play. This is when things tend to get a bit murky in the human experience. As a need decays, much like the Sims, the desire to have that need fulfilled rises, and if an adequate source of provision is not brought about, people will start exerting their will to find a way to provide what may be lacking. So hopefully you're following the progression there. We have these needs. If those needs are not met, needs will lead to desire. Desire for whatever that need might be will eventually lead to us exerting our own will to fill it if it's not met the way that is that we're content with. So that is the progression. This is going to be where the issue of sin enters a picture and a person's resolve breaks down, making them more susceptible to fulfilling those needs in selfish, ungodly ways. And it's at that point of desire that 
we have to realize that sin has its greatest roots. An individual who is connected closely with God will aim to fill it in a godly way, while those with a weak or non-existent connection to God will aim to fill it in the most immediate way that they can find. So it's not at that point of the need that sin dwells. It's that moment between need and will where the desire is. When the desire for that need is awakened, that's where sin likes to rest. That's where the enemy likes to attack because that's when the doubt gets put into place. Now, when we look back to the Genesis account, what was the need that wasn't met? The best we can pull from that story is possibly knowledge and therefore the knowledge that they felt they had to have, the desire was put into place. And obviously the, the enemy, the serpent, steps in and says, you can't trust God to give you what you need. you got to take it. You've just got to take hold of it. So desire sets in and they act on that desire. So we can make that argument in the garden. Adam and Eve had everything they could ever need. So what would push them to disobey? For me, the answer is the questioning of trust or belief in God's capabilities. Enter the actions of the serpent. The serpent is identified as being craftier of all creation. He was deceptive and manipulative and always looking for a way to deceive God's greatest creation, which was humanity. In talking things over with Eve, while Adam was there, he questions if there was anything they were unable to do based on God's direction. He was looking for a foothold to take advantage of. When he is informed that they were not permitted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he saw his opportunity. In the span of a few sentences, he takes hold of this and pushes the narrative that God was being deceptive and trying to keep humanity from being like God in their own knowledge. The serpent went for the jugular and attacked the trust that humanity had in God. He attacked their belief and certainty in God's capability to be God, leading to their action, which was to defy God's orders and eat of the tree. While the action taken of eating of the fruit was part of the process, I'd have to claim that in this situation, their true original sin was relinquishing their belief or trust in God by allowing the, de the deceit to cloud their judgment of who he is, driving them to act in a way that was self-serving. I mean, who wouldn't find it appealing to be like God as something as powerful as knowledge? Knowledge is power, and as I understand it, the issue wasn't that God didn't want people to have knowledge, but that he wanted them to trust in him in receiving it and not just taking it for themselves. We run into that issue today uh, a lot. Um, knowledge has to be handled rightly. Only God has the perfect knowledge to share what is right. By taking this action, Adam and Eve decided that they could handle truth rightly without God's help. And we see that happening so much in today's society where people have stepped away from what is true and right based on God's word, who is the only one who gets to decide what is right and what is good. And they're taking their own path. They're still questioning. They're still doubting that God is capable of doing what they expect him to do. So to sum up, the order of events would be as follows. The fruit of the tree is representative of God's knowledge. Knowledge is a need in the lives of humanity. We must know truth in order to rightly handle it and orient our lives in a proper, healthy trajectory. And there is a passage, and the reference escapes me, but it says, My people perish for a lack of knowledge. So we do know that knowledge is a need, and one that God desires us to have in our lives. 
The servant entered and played up this need and took aim at their desires for this need. Once the damage had been done, the will of the two took over, resulting in the act of disobeying God. I hope that all makes sense. Um, I know it's a lot to swallow, especially if you're challenged in the regards to what you've always thought sin would be. I know I was challenged on this, but as I reflected on it, it began to make sense when we enter this discussion about the big S sin. When we speak of God being incapable of sin and understanding it as unbelief, it makes sense that God is not capable of not believing in himself. He knows his nature and is aware of the power behind who he is. God's not capable of denying his own nature and his own power. For God to ever doubt that is impossible and therefore makes sense to connect this reality that God is incapable of such an act. We even have actions throughout scripture where God swears by himself to make promises to people. This is Genesis 15, because it's only upon himself that he can guarantee anything for certain. He couldn't swear upon man. Mankind's going to mess anything up. Another thought that occurred to me in making this connection is in relation to Jesus hanging on the cross and taking on the sin of the world. His cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, takes on a whole new understanding. As we see that in taking on the original sin of unbelief, that doubt and uncertainty was taken on, making it appear that God was not involved in this process and had abandoned his son at his greatest hour of need. The idea that unbelief blinds us to God's presence is strong and can be connected again to Adam and Eve when they believe that they could hide from God. Their sin of unbelief made them think that God was incapable of seeing or interacting with them. And I know in terms of just our own personal sin, so many times we are blind to God moving or acting because we're so caught up in our grief and our own circumstances and our own issues. And finally, it can bring into discussion the issue of how children are guilty of sin when they don't consciously act on things for quite some time. I'm not going to get into a discussion about age of accountability and, and all that stuff, but if sin is unbelief, it makes sense why authors claim that children are saved by their parents up until they're able to comprehend their own belief in God. Children's belief in God hinges largely on the parents' belief in God, and if it's lacking in the parents, it will most likely be lacking in the children outside of any other external circumstances. I understand that this is not a 100% certainty. Reality is circumstances take over, and you'll have a child who is a believer in Christ without any sense of parental guidance. But in the scriptural teachings, we do hear about a child being saved through their parents. Now, I don't claim that these previous points are gospel truth, but they seem to imply the truth behind unbelief as the original sin of humanity. And by viewing sin this way, it helps to fill in some gaps and stories throughout scripture, at least the way I see it. Understanding original sin this way also helps us trace back our symptoms to the virus by asking, what do I not trust God with that I am substituting this action for? What will actually make me feel fulfilled? A topic that we're going to look more fully into in the next episode. Uh, the reality being that when we don't trust God and we don't believe that he is capable of filling whatever our need might be, that's when we start acting out. That's when we start exhibiting those symptoms. Overall, the issue of sin is one that is more complicated at its roots than it seems on the surface. And part of going deeper in our Christian walk is by dismantling common teachings and themes 
and analyzing what they are at their root. For the issue of sin, I don't think there's anything wrong with viewing rebellion against God as the original sin, but in my reflections, I think it stems from a lack of belief in God and his capabilities to provide what we need when it's needed. The issue of sin, as we've started, is definitely one that is challenging. And I would love to know your thoughts on this, because as I said, I'm not presenting this as if this is gospel truth. This is just my own reflections as I was reading and preparing for this. And when we come together for the next podcast in a couple of weeks, we are going to talk more about the practical side of dealing with sin. We're going to look at repentance. We're going to look at sowing to the spirit versus sowing to the flesh and what all that means and how that all ties into sin. And I would, as I said, love to know your thoughts on this. So reach out to me and let me know if you agree or disagree with these thoughts. You can do this through Discord, Twitter, or you can email me, uh, pastorstumac at gmail.com. And you'll find the links to all of those things in the description of this podcast. I do want to close with a word of prayer uh, before we end here. So let's do that. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and Lord, we recognize that sin is a major issue in humans. Lord, we know that it's an issue we can't fix. So Father, as we go through this week, we just ask that you would enlighten us to your word, to your working and to the reality of who you are and what work your son did. Father, I pray that you would challenge us in this and that we would come to a better understanding and trust in who you are and what you're capable of. We thank you for all the work you do, and we thank you that we can turn to you in the midst of all of our trials and troubles. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, thanks so much for listening. And taking the time to bear with me as I ramble through some uh, some talk about sin. And until next time, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Blessings to you all.